Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Cheers to a great day and this ice cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salute to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hello and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And today we're here with a little feedback episode for you. That's right. Every third week we share some of the stories you, our listeners, have shared with us about the topics we've most recently covered on the show. Because a lot of you write in and a lot of you have super interesting and great things to say. Today's topics are The Soft Life and Ilaria Baldwin. Jolenta, shall we start off with the soft life? We, yes. we got a lot of letters on that. Yes, we did. Let's start nice and soft. Many of you <laughs> wrote in to say you already live the soft life, even if you don't personally use that term to describe it. Jennifer said, finding out that there was a term soft life that originated with women like me who want to stop hustling and prioritize a slower, more intentional life was validating. Making the shift from hustle culture can be lonely. Giving myself permission to ask, what do I need and want is changing how I go about my days. The soft life aesthetic brings optimism and a lighthearted approach to living in a world bombarded by bad news. Thanks for covering this topic. Yay, Jennifer. I also love it when there is suddenly a term for something that I am trying to do. Like, it makes me feel less alone to totally. have a name for it, right? Yeah, and and it also, in a way, sort of validates your coping mechanism mm -hmm. of like, oh, people yeah. are doing this to like feel healthier and better about their lives, and I'm not alone in how I've decided to sort of cope with hustle culture or counteract it. Exactly. That's so cool. Lisa says, 
I've been out here auditioning for the soft life all summer. This past weekend, that (laughs) meant food, shopping, and fun with an old friend with the emphasis on the friend. He's one of the best things work ever brought into my life. Work isn't just about hustling, and life for black women isn't just about being strong. I love auditioning for the soft life. I just love that turn of phrase. Lisa beautifully said. And that's such a good reminder that you can get beneficial things for your actual like life and inner life from work. Yes. Like, you know, work can bring you friendship and connection. Mm-hmm. Work brought us together, Kristen. It did. And I am so grateful for that. I'm grateful for it every single day. It's not just about the hustle. Me too. Joelle says, Black women have historically been at the forefront of social justice movements, advocating for change and progress. However, this activism often comes at a cost to our mental and emotional well-being. Thank you for highlighting the fact that we also deserve care, gentleness, and softness. Uh, Amen to that. You absolutely do deserve care, gentleness, and softness. And it is excuse my language, very fucked up that the world treats black women like they don't deserve these very basic things that all humans deserve. It's so fucked up. Yeah. And like a lot of social change comes from the labor, hard work, steadfastness, dedication, tenacity, you name it, of such a marginalized group of people like we own all the fucking soft life they want. Yes, absolutely. But... Not everyone quite understood the soft life after our segment. Yeah. Diane wrote in on our Facebook group and said, I'm going to put myself out there. I have an honest question regarding this episode. Let me start out by saying I'm a 43-year-old white woman. I have a 28-year-old son that's biracial. I was born and raised in eastern Washington State, U.S., I grew up taught to see everyone as equal. I feel like we are drawing heavy lines between races. Why is it wrong for me to want to do something just because a black person came up with the idea? Full credit to the originator, of course. Don't get me wrong. I understand cultural appropriation, but I don't think the soft life crosses that line since it's a fairly recent idea. Thank you in advance for a respectful conversation to alleviate my ignorance. Diane, thank you so much for writing. And we don't want anybody to be afraid to write in with questions to us. And we're always Mm -hmm. happy to clarify things. So as the person who led this segment and researched the topic, I'm just going to jump in here and say that for much of history, as Jolenta said just a few minutes earlier, there has been an unrealistic expectation and burden placed on black women to create social change, to hold their heads high, to do the hard work, to be the quintessential, quote, strong black woman. Black women and non-black people, non-black women alike, we have been told to celebrate the stereotype, to think of it as a great thing. Meanwhile, the soft life pushes back against all that. The soft life is in direct response to that stereotype. It's encouraging Mm. Black women to give themselves the space to not always be strong, to not always hustle, to not always hold it together. Instead, it is encouraging Black women to acknowledge their hurts, to be gentle with themselves, to embrace joy. So that's a very long way of saying the soft life is a specific reaction by Black women to an unfair burden placed on Black women. I hope that makes sense. That makes sense. It's not like they just came up with an activity like just for fun. It's like this is a reaction to 
the unfair burden expectations, mental, emotional labor that is placed on this group of people. Yes. And I do have to say, in response to the first part of your letter, Diane, many white people, myself included, were taught at one point or another that we should try to not see race and instead see everyone as equal. The whole like, I don't see color thing, you know, that was up until like what? the mid 90s. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Maybe even the early 2000s. And like while color blindness is totally well intentioned, like, you know, we're aiming for equality. It also leaves people without the language to discuss race and the inequities people of different races face. And it sort of robs us of our chance to sort of examine our own biases as well. Color blindness sort of relies on the idea that race-based differences, they don't even matter. Like, no one gets treated differently if we're colorblind, but, like, that's just not true. And it ignores the realities of, like, systemic racism and inequity. So I hope this helps, and thank you for, like, being willing to ask the tough questions. That's part of why I love our Facebook group so much, because... For the most part, it is the most respectful, most well-intentioned, smart group I am a part of on Facebook. It is. It absolutely is. And finally, Kira had this to add, and I think it might be good for all of us to ponder, not just Diane who wrote in, but all of us. Kira says, I really valued this episode, and Diane's question made me think of more questions. Why do racial categories exist? What purpose did they serve at their creation? What is their impact today? What role does capitalism play in racism and racialization? What feelings come up for me when conversations about race, racialization, and racism come up? How does my identity and positioning in society affect the way I see these issues? I come to this conversation as an anti-bias facilitator and ask these questions of myself, my colleagues, and learners who I get to work with, choosing a few of these questions to investigate, not necessarily to answer, might be worthwhile since the segment struck something in you. It struck something in me, too. Wow. Kira, thank you for all of these questions. I love them all, and I'm going to like try to go back to them whenever, whenever I'm like, wait, why is it like this? <laughs> yes, very useful questions, I think, for all of us. Okay, we are going to take a quick break, everyone. But reminder, you can always share your stories, questions, thoughts, anything with us at kristenangelinta at gmail.com. Or you can weigh in on Facebook, like a lot of our listeners have been in this episode, facebook.com slash groups slash kristenangelinta. Coming up. All your thoughts? Well, not all of them. We don't have time for that. But some of your thoughts on <laughs> Ilaria Baldwin. Stay with us. We're back. And now let's hear some of your many, many thoughts on everyone's favorite fake Spaniard, Ilaria Baldwin. Yes, I was not expecting this to be such a lively topic, but <laughs> damn, you all had so much to say. If you're not a member of the Facebook group, get over there. Yes. But let's get back to Ilaria. Ali says, I'm Spanish-American. My grandfather immigrated from Spain to the U.S. as a teen, and my grandmother's family immigrated shortly before her birth. 
I lived in Spain for a short time in my 20s, and while my Spanish has gotten really bad, I feel connected to the culture and my family that remains there. I have a Spanish last name, and I'm a white lady in a part of the U.S. where people don't expect folks with Spanish last names to be white. I'm often asked how I came by my last name, and folks tend to assume I married someone with Mexican heritage. I can't speak for every Spanish-American person, and most certainly cannot speak for Spanish immigrants, but I have found it is more acceptable for me to carry my last name because my heritage is not Latin American, and probably because I'm white. The vibe shifts, and people are all, oh, cool, that's neat. I do not imagine that black and brown Spanish speakers receive the same response. I bring this up because I think this is one of the reasons Hilaria probably decided to be Spanish and not another kind of Spanish speaker. She gets to have all the advantages of exoticism while also being the, quote, right kind of immigrant, i.e. white European immigrant. She also enjoys the social cachet of being Latinx adjacent, particularly when it comes to the way in which Latina women are considered sexy and alluring, which is a whole other thing about the fetishization of women of color. It feels very much like a perpetuation of colonial oppression. And for Hilaria Hillary to decide to capitalize on that makes her even more icky to me. Mm, wow. Allie, thank you so much yes. for sharing your first-person experience in the story. And yeah, I think that what you're speaking to is so important and valid here because it's shining a light on the fact that discrimination, race, language, all of these categories can be separate along with national origin or they can overlap in really mm -hmm. complicated ways. And some people will right. think, oh, but she's white, so what's the big deal? Or she's European. But being Hispanic, speaking a Spanish language, coming from Spanish origins in the U.S., that is still stigmatized and not just stigmatized. There's structural inequality and oppression built around that. That is why on our national census, that is why when we fill out equal employment opportunity paperwork and so on, why we are all asked if we are Hispanic. Because government agencies, organizations, and so on know that this discrimination is real and want to find ways to combat it and want to find ways to level the playing field because anti-Hispanic discrimination is real. Yeah, especially in the U.S. Yes, absolutely. Elizabeth also wrote in with a first-person story. She says, I am a person who is 50% Latinx, 50% white, and looks more Asian and white than Latinx. I know this because I am constantly asked if I am Asian. The fact that Ilaria has never actually had this issue of feeling otherized while growing up, but has created her persona to tell these stories that is hurtful and cruel to those of us who have had these experiences. Well put, Elizabeth. Yeah, it's offensive. Yeah, and it is a real burden to carry to grow up and to be scarred by being otherized and then to just put right. it on as a costume like this is this exotic thing I'm doing. To put it on as an adult and being like, hey, I'm this now. It's like, yeesh. Yeah. And Michelle wrote in with this to say, it is so offensive to pretend to be an immigrant struggling with English. On top of that, Ilaria accepting offers and publicity from magazines and outlets geared towards Spanish and Latinx people meant taking up space from actual Spanish and Latinx people. Her behavior and the way she has built a false persona is offensive and appropriative. Yeah, Michelle, I think that you're bringing up a really good point here about her taking opportunities away. I think a lot of people think this is just a quirky story of a weird D-list celebrity, but... 
it's not just quirky. This is somebody who is taking opportunities away from other people. It is not a victimless crime. Right. Yeah. All those covers she did for Ola magazine could have been someone who is actually from Spain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or just someone who's actually Latinx. Absolutely. Pratyusha says, white women who profit from yoga and Eastern spirituality already don't sit well with me. As a brown-skinned person who didn't have the option of being the fun type of exotic when I was being called racial slurs and bullied mercilessly about everything from my ugly brown face to my parents' accents to the smell of masala, I am glad this is being called out. Not that she'll face any real consequences, but it feels good to have people recognize how wrong it is. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I forgot about all the freaking yoga she does. That's her whole brand. Like, you can do yoga around the house with your baby near you. Like, look at me doing, you know, weird push-ups against my bathtub. Yeah, her version of yoga is so irritating. Like, here I am on a stove, literally with my head on a stove while I sit on a counter. She's the kind of person who you're having a perfectly good day in a museum or a public space, and suddenly there is Ilaria, who's decided she's going to do dolphin pose right there. Or do a, <laughs> do a headstand yes. or whatever, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and it's true, just putting on that exotic persona to essentially sell a brand, be an influencer, <sighs> it's just shitty. Yeah, it definitely is. Margaret wrote in to say, I found Ilaria Baldwin's recent impromptu sidewalk press conference cringe-worthy and infuriating. The accent and her general demeanor in that clip as a helpless victim pleading for her family coupled with her sexualized image reads as a particularly offensive and demeaning caricature of Latinx women. Even though she's claiming to be Spanish, not Latinx, she's playing off the North American stereotypes of Latinx women as highly sexualized, yet also dependent and maternal and selling that image. Yes. Yeah. 100% yes to that. With all her Baldwinitos. Oh, yeah. God. Yes. She loves her Baldwinitos. Ugh. God. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But while a lot of you appreciate us calling out Ilaria Baldwin and her antics, not all of you felt this episode sat well with you. Right. Aaron M. wrote in to say, Regarding today's episode, y'all, I have a lot of ick feelings about it. Skinny shaming is a thing, and y'all were mean. Imagine how it must have felt to have just had a baby and people were body shaming you. It doesn't matter what they were saying. They were commenting on the body of a person who just gave birth. Yuck. And Aaron's post led to a great discussion about body shaming on Facebook. Catherine responded saying, as a person who was very thin as a kid and teased about it, I agree. But Anna chimed in to say, I don't think Amy Schumer was skinny shaming Ilaria Baldwin. She was poking fun at Baldwin for posting a sexy thirst trap photo to begin with. And as I see it, there's definitely room to critique someone who makes money off their appearance posting something that feeds into unrealistic expectations and body image struggles for women. Karen W. responded saying, skinny shaming is definitely a thing and it's not okay. No one deserves to have their body commented on and critiqued. Fat shaming is substantively different, though, in that it's backed up with social and cultural norms and expectations, including massive segments of our economy and systems looking at you, medical system, diet industry, mass media, etc. People in smaller bodies do not face the class-based discrimination that people in larger bodies do. And Krista added, I've been skinny. 
weighed 137 pounds, full-term pregnant, and bounced back in the hospital before coming home. And I have been fat, referred to bariatrics for surgery fat. It absolutely is not the same thing when being commented on being skinny. Not even a little, not even at all. So-called skinny shaming is related to jealousy over the fact that you are the desired size. It is actually just mean validation. Fat shaming is literally shaming. No one felt about me as a skinny person what they do now that I'm fat. Mm, yeah, and I think these last few comments were what I was trying to get at in the episode when I said right. probably not very gracefully and maybe a little bit flippantly. A little definitively. <laughs> yes, that skinny shaming is not a thing. I was getting to the structural inequality, the economic injustice the real documented medical discrimination and racism that are linked to fat shaming and that larger system of fat discrimination. That's what I was getting at when I said skinny shaming is not a thing. That, along with what Krista was getting at here, skinny shaming for the most part is, to borrow what you said here, Krista, it's just mean validation. You are this ideal, and I might be giving you a hard time for doing it maybe a little too well. But it is mm -hmm. not the same thing. When skinniness is held as the ideal of what we should be, it's not discrimination and it's not really shaming when people mention it around you. That's kind of like saying straight shaming. A gay comedian might make a joke where the punchline is about straight people, but straight shaming is not really a thing. It's not a systemic issue. It's not something that we should be standing up for and saying, but what about the straight people? We don't need to do that. Yeah. On an individual basis, like I know people who are skinny who have been like totally bullied for it and picked on and people sort of act concerned about their health, maybe just to sort of pry into learning about like what they eat. Like on an individual basis, it can feel intense. But like Kristen was saying, systemically, there's a difference. You don't have to pay more to fly on planes or buy clothes or get an MRI and that sort of stuff. There are societal inequities that don't translate, even though some of the verbal teasing and bullying can translate. So yeah, it's tough because I know people who are naturally so skinny, like doctors worry about them. And they did get bullied and teased and have a hard time and feel ashamed of their body. But no one assumed the sort of moral failing of them that we sort of put on people in larger bodies. Yeah. But shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on to some people who wanted to come to Ilaria's defense because a lot of you out there really do think that we were too hard on her. Aaron S. said, I've followed her on Instagram for years. She does speak Spanish with her family and has an accent, but has never mentioned being an immigrant. Her extended family currently lives in Spain, and she spent a lot of time there growing up, which is why she speaks Spanish. I'm having a hard time seeing the big deal. I work with a woman who has an Irish accent and uses the Irish vernacular because she lived there 10 years ago and connected to the culture. She isn't Irish, but that doesn't make her a faker either. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did your friend go on a study abroad to Ireland? I hope they lived there longer than just a study abroad. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and like the hope in my heart. Uh, yes, but we all know that person who went on a study abroad for a year in Europe and then they came back with the accent, right? 
And we love them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought of when you mentioned right. your coworker with the Irish accent who was there 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and I think we touched on like why it's problematic earlier in this episode, but especially in the US, people from the UK, like there are studies on this, we tend to hear their voices and give them more respect and think they're smarter. Yes. And so, in my opinion, putting on an accent of someone from the UK is putting on a higher status persona. So I guess I'm trying to say faking upward mobility in society is different from putting on a more marginalized accent, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I agree, Jolenta. Finally, Claire wrote in to say this. I have followed Ilaria for years on Instagram. I love her. She is down to earth, loves her kids, loves her followers, and is completely generous and real. If you look at her sharing herself, 90% is mom life and only 10% is I am Spanish content. She is a good-hearted soul who is basically raising a preschool. The amount of energy you spent on her is over the top. <laughs> I agree that she is a very loving mother who is very good to her children, and that is a lot of her content. I think the issue is her content is her job, is what she's selling us. This isn't just like a random person. She's selling us, I'm a mom, I work out, you can be like me, buy my book, buy these products, I have endorsement deals with And so because she's selling us stuff and trying to sort of capitalize on that accent, that's, I think, why it's more problematic, you know? Yeah. I also just have a personal beef with people letting other people off the hook because they're moms. Being a mom doesn't make you a better person. She can be a good mom and still like have done a weird shitty taking on a persona that isn't hers thing. You know, those two those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. And the fact that she, to quote you, Claire, is basically raising a preschool. She didn't bring in a bunch of orphans off the street. She's not being a martyr here. She chose to capitalize on these children and how her body bounces back after every pregnancy. This is part of a larger wellness empire, in my opinion. So I I, I don't think it's as pure and simple as she's a good mom here. Right. This isn't just a random person whose love of her children skyrocketed her to influence her status. This is someone who made a choice to use the fact that she is a mother and use the fact that she is, quote, Spanish to sell products and wellnessy lifestyle stuff to us. So that's why it's a problem because, you know, like we always say, we like to go to our source. And if our source is faking a somewhat marginalized identity, that is concerning. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, Thank you, everybody who wrote in about Ilaria. And please continue to. It's been great reading all those comments. It's so interesting. There are so many smart, kind people in our group. So many people who want to learn. I freaking love it. Yeah, it's just great. And you know what else is great? All of the listener feedback coming in for our advice seekers. We're going to get to that right after our break. We are back and we have some additional advice for some of our recent letter writers from 
all of you, our listeners. Yes. Stephanie says, to the advice seeker who wants to move countries, as someone who lives in the UK, let me just say that this is not the country to go to if you're avoiding the alarming rise of fascism. Police brutality, restrictions on bodily autonomy, criminalizing refugees, outlawing protests, and villainizing striking and workers' unions, it's all part of daily life here. And no person or political scandal seems to deter the ruling party from pushing harder and harder on their ultra-right-wing agenda. My main point? I'm not originally from here. My family and I could very realistically pick up and move to my home of Barbados. The political landscape in Barbados is much more in line with our own values. And yet, every time we visit as a family, we know that we don't actually want to live there for social reasons, financial reasons, and just something about belonging that is difficult to put our finger on. There are political problems everywhere. I think where you choose to live has to be a personal decision more than a political one. Regimes change, politics change. Yeah, it's a sort of grass is always greener thing too, isn't it? Yeah. Once you actually sit down and learn about where you're idealizing, where you think it would be perfect, either it's not as great as you thought, or even when it is more in line with your values, when you're there, it can just feel like not your home anymore or not your home in the future. Absolutely. I, th I think that is such a good point because there is something that we can't always put our fingers on that just a place doesn't feel like home to us or it does, even if it's a place that doesn't line up with us entirely politically or otherwise, it can still feel weird to live somewhere else, you know, right, right. versus this place that feels like home to us. Absolutely. And Tabby wrote in to say, this wasn't in the letter, but the host mentioned how many people proclaim they will move countries after elections. My take, either become involved in fixing domestic political issues or take active, informative steps towards a visa. But note, it will be hard. It took me four years to get my double citizenship. Also, to foreigners, it often feels just like an American sense of superiority when y'all just announce you will easily do this. An American passport does not grant you automatic entry. <laughs> Tabby. Oh, yeah. It is a stupid pipe dream. And we're like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to Canada. It's like... Yeah. You know how stupid you sound? How stupid I sound when I say that? We just assume all these other countries, they would be so excited to have one more American move there. You want us. You love Americans, Ugh, right? What a stupid... <laughs> yeah, it's such a knee-jerk, like, <laughs> pompous thing to say. You're so right, Tabby. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna think twice before I'm like, fuck it, I gotta get out of here. And it's like, to where, princess? <laughs> K adds... Being a foreigner living in another country can be very isolating. So before you move, leaving behind friends and family, ask yourself what sorts of support systems will you have in this new country or how you will go about finding those systems. Right, right. Even in countries where people speak the same language as you, the culture can be super different. It can be hard navigating your way through different systems, whether they be school or otherwise. And before you move, you definitely need to seek out, like, is there a community that I could maybe be a part of? Are there resources mm -hmm. where I can figure out how stuff works? So definitely think about the isolation. That's a good one to remember. Yeah, it can be real. It definitely can. And finally, some advice came in for our dear face picker. 
Catherine says, I have dermatillomania, also known as compulsive skin picking or excoriation disorder, and have struggled with skin picking for years. I encourage anyone struggling to look into the Picking Me Foundation and the TLC Foundation for body-focused repetitive behaviors for lots of helpful resources, including a community of others who know what it's like. For me, having a good manicure helps. I also cover a lot of my mirrors, keep my lights dim, and try to be aware of times I often pick, like right before bed, and work to incorporate routines that distract me from picking. I have tried therapy in the past and have had mixed success with dermatologists and therapists not fully understanding compulsive skin picking as a mental health issue. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much for writing in and sharing those resources. Again, those are the Picking Me Foundation and the TLC Foundation for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors. It's so good to know that there are organizations out there for so many of the things we might feel alone in, so many of the things that we might feel like, am I the only one going through this? But the fact that there are folks out there who are studying this, who are providing help. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing those. Yeah, I'm totally going to check that out. And like, I feel like a little too seen when you said you pick before bed. That's my prime hour for being like glued to the mirror with some tweezers, like looking for a chin hair to just demolish. So thank you so much for these resources and for just pointing out, like, look at your patterns because I never did that until you just said that, Catherine. (laughs) And thank you to everybody who wrote in this week. Thank you to the people who have been visiting us on Instagram. Instagram is at how to be fine pod. Jolenta manages that and always has great stuff there. Uh, on Twitter, of course, we are also at how to be fine pod. I don't know if it's still called Twitter or if we're supposed to call it something else now. <laughs> I don't know where we are with that. <laughs> but thank you, all of you. We so appreciate it. it for this episode of how to be fine huge huge thank you to our production team at stitcher our executive producer nora Ritchie, our producer Chantel holder and our composer slash engineer casey holford by the way Chantel, who is such a great producer also produces a show called vibe check highly recommend checking that out a recent episode had a fantastic interview with the one and only roxanne gay so also please mm. check out vibe check Chantel is a superstar. She works on that show and ours. We love Chantel so much. We love you, Chantel. Also, if you haven't already, please rate us and review us wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It helps people find the show. It helps us know what you think about the show. And of course, you know, tell a friend about the show. Who doesn't love good old word of mouth? Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolanta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher. 